Beloved, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 6, and you'll keep your finger in there. We'll also look at Acts, chapter 20, if you'll please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Acts, chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, and then Acts 20, verse 28. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And now turn over, if you would, to Acts chapter 20 and verse 28. Acts 20 and verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Here is the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our Redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Jesus loves his church. Jesus treasures his church. He loves the members of his church. He loves the ordained officers of his church. He loves the ordinances of his church church, especially the word preached and the sacraments administered and received and the prayers offered. Jesus loves the spirit-filled worship and mission and discipleship and fellowship of his church. How much does Jesus love his church? He loves the church so much that he left the exalted glories of heaven to suffer and die for the church. In Ephesians 5:25, the apostle Paul writes, "Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her." Dear ones, there's no greater love than the love which Christ has for his bride, the church. It's a fierce and indescribable love. A love unknown to this world apart from its revelation in Christ, in his word. The only love, of course, that would equal this this love that Christ has for the church is the love that the Father has for the church. He sent his Son into the world. He delivered him over into the hands of wicked men to be crucified. He crushed his own Son for the salvation of the church. And then, of course, there's the love of the Spirit sent by the Father and the Son to indwell the church, to sanctify the church. God 
the Trinity, God's love for the church, for his church, is unmistakable. Thus, it should be no surprise that the church was designed by God to play a central and vital role in the Christian's life, both as organism and organization. The church is the people of God, yes, but the church is also to be understood as as the gathered people of God with all those ordinances that God himself has ordained for the blessing of the church and the fellowship of, of the church. But this important truth has been lost on many modern-day Christians. Perhaps it's lost on some of you here this morning. Recent polls show a steep decline in church attendance and church membership over these past few years. Why is that? Well, many Christians today view their faith in highly individualistic terms. Many Christians today retreat from authority and from accountability. Rather than connect to a local church, they will connect to the internet and do Christianity online and on their own terms. And again, with no shepherding care and oversight and accountability. It's interesting when you think about the gathered church under the same preaching of the word of God, how that affects the congregation, how it influences conversation, how it raises the stakes in a lot of ways. Because when the minister says certain things in the context of the body, where you have been covenanted together through vows and through your commitment to one another, it raises the stakes for everyone when certain things are said from the pulpit, right? So when everyone hears it together... Now we're all accountable to it, and we all know that, and there's something important about that dynamic in the life of a local church. Others have been hurt by the church in the past, and so they've written it off as unnecessary at best and harmful at worst. Then there are those who have become disenchanted with the church after attending what, for the past 20 years, have been the most popular kinds of churches, the kind of superficial big box Churches where practical needs uh, may have been met, but deep spiritual needs were left wanting. They've gone to these churches longing for the meat and potatoes of the word, for something deeper, but all they got was skim milk. Does any of this sound familiar to you? Maybe you've experienced this. Maybe you are experiencing it. Maybe someone you love or know is experiencing one of these things. The answer to all of these problems, of course, is not to walk away from the church or to give up on the church. Remember, God loves the church. Christ died for the church. The church is the bride of Christ. The church was instituted by Christ. And Jesus himself is, Matthew, 6, Matthew 18, building the church. Matthew 16, 18, building the church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail Against it. He's building it by his spirit and word. On just about every page of the New Testament, it is assumed that if you are a follower of Christ, you will be vitally connected to the life and ministry of the local church. So rather than forsake the church altogether, we must recover, first of all, a right understanding of it, and we must become active and committed members of a biblically faithful church. For it's in and through a biblical church, please hear this, it is in and through a biblical church that Christ himself shepherds, feeds, nourishes, and protects 
his sheep. It's apart from the church that professing Christians are exposed to all manner of spiritual dangers, not least the danger of apostasy and eternal separation from God. I saw a a meme uh, this week online, and it had a pack of zebras, and then it had one zebra about 100 yards from that pack, and a lion was chasing it. And uh, the comment was something like, this is what it's like to be away from the church. When you're away from the loving fellowship and accountability and the ministry of the church, you open your life up. You become susceptible to all kinds of spiritual dangers, those from without and those from within. We need to hear the faithful preaching of the word. We need to be in the context of community where there is mutual accountability and where there is true love according to Scripture. Of course, be apart from the church. One deals with all kinds of spiritual dangers, not least the danger of apostasy, forsaking God altogether and of eternal separation from God. So why, why all the talk about the church when our subject this morning is church leadership? Well, because apart from grasping on some level the value and necessity of the church, we will not apprehend the value and necessity of ordained officers for the church, namely elders and deacons. And this is our subject for this morning as we prepare to ordain eight new men into church leadership, three new elders, five new deacons, as we set apart these godly men unto a holy and lifelong calling of faithful service to Christ's church. And so I've provided you with an outline on page nine, if you would like to follow along, as we consider uh, some important points about church office and the life and ministry of the church in your lives and in our lives as Christians. And so Acts chapter six, verses one through seven, let's turn our attention to that. In this short passage, Luke reports that some inward complaining and division had arisen in the early church. Imagine that, complaining in the church. Never, right? Some complaining had started. They were experiencing growing pains due to rapid growth and blessing. This happens sometimes, doesn't it? Growing pains, growing pains. Numerical growth is wonderful, but it can present new and recurring problems, like, for example, uh, the need for a facility with ample space and ample nursery space. Um, Can I get an amen on that from... uh, from moms and nursery workers. Uh, We need classrooms and fellowship space, and here we are a year and a half into our new facility and already uh, sort of busting at the seams. Quick numerical growth can also be a cause of neglect regarding the needs of the flock, whether spiritual or material. Growth can truly test a congregation because a congregation is full of redeemed sinners who still struggle with things like selfishness and pride and idolatry and worldliness. Growth and change are hard in the church because they take us out of our comfort zones and challenge our illusions of control. Growth is hard because a lot of times people don't want change. They want things to stay as they are. They love the church the way it is. I don't want all these other people coming. I remember when I used to be able to know everybody's name. and I knew what I remember back when I... When I knew all the kids, and now there's just people everywhere. Okay, so let's back up a little bit. I think 
the goal of the church is to grow. You would never say to your child, well, you may say that. Actually, I do say that to my kids, so forget, forget that. I sometimes say, oh, I remember when you were so little and cute and everything else. But we would never want our child to stay four years old. We want growth. We want blessing. Uh, our goal, and my goal has never been ever for one second uh, when I wake up in the morning to have a megachurch, to have some giant church where they, people can't be properly shepherded and loved and cared for and where there's proper order. No. But we want growth. We want the blessing of God upon the church. We want more people to come under the preaching of the gospel and the discipleship of the church. But this growth sometimes brings difficulties. And here in, in, in Acts 6, we see a complaint rise by the Hellenists uh, because, um, and it was, it was against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. The word complaint here in the Greek is the same word used in the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament, to describe the complaining of Israel against God and against Moses. So this wasn't ordinary kind of harmless complaining. This was complaining that had the potential to do serious damage in the church, to bring serious disunity. There are different levels of complaining. This was, this was that which could bring great division. Luke reports that the complaints came from the Hellenists, or the Greek-speaking Jews. They complained against the Hebrews, that is the Aramaic-speaking Jews from Palestine. Why? Because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of perhaps uh, monies or food or something like that. It's a ministry of benevolence. And this would have been, of course, an emotional issue. These were real needs that were not being met. Earlier in Acts chapter 2, for instance, we learn that the early Christians took care of each other. They sold their goods and they distributed things as there were needs. Remember, there was persecution going on and people were coming into the church and they, they didn't have ordinary necessities. And so the Christians were being gracious and, and selling their own possessions, just like you would do if there were people joining this church and persecution broke out and there were those that didn't have food, but you had a lot of nice furniture at your house, you would have a yard sale and you would sell some of that furniture so that your brothers and sisters could eat. And you would take them in. And this is the kind of thing that was going on in the early church. Money was collected through alms. It was given to the apostles to distribute as needed in the church. But apparently, because of the growth of the church and the needs of the church, it grew too big for the apostles to handle this on their own. Needs were being neglected. And it's easy to see how this could become a problem. The Hellenists and the Hebrews were from two different cultural and linguistic backgrounds. So one can see how there could be miscommunication and misunderstanding on these matters with these folks from different contexts. Interestingly, the apostles didn't seek to form two different congregations. Oh, I have an idea. Since y'all don't get along, let's just have two different congregations. No, they actually said, let's, let's deal with this in a way that's going to bring us all together. And it's going to continue the preaching of the gospel as well as the service to God's people, these needs being met. And so they worked towards unity and sought the Lord for wisdom. What did they do? Well, look at verse 2. Look at verse 2. We read in verse 2 that the apostles recognized that it would not be good for them to give up the preaching of the word to serve tables. In other words, the benevolence needs in the flock are very important, but nothing can, can impede or should impede the primary ministry of the preaching of the word of God. It's simple. If there's no preaching of the word, there is no true church. 
That is a mark of the true church of Jesus Christ, whether here or elsewhere. It's that the word of God is faithfully preached. Sadly, this is what the mainline liberal denominations have become. Spiritual wastelands littered with progressive political activism, man-centered philanthropy, and social clubs. The word of God is not being preached, and so they are not true churches. And so you can't give up the preaching to take care of all of these needs. They must both be there. But for the apostles and later the elders, the faithful preaching and teaching of the word of God is the primary task. It must not be eclipsed by anything. So what would the apostles do? Under God's direction, they established a new office called what? The diaconate. The deacon. Look with me at verses 2 and 3. They summoned the disciples together and said, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. To what duty, you may ask? Well, to the collecting of money, to the caring of widows and orphans, to the maintaining of the facilities, and doing other practical things for the church body. This was the establishment of the office of deacon. And of course, the preaching and teaching duties of the apostles would be handed down to the elders, like Timothy and Titus. So why church offices? Why church offices? Because it is through the offices of elder and deacon that Christ himself, that the resurrected, ascended, and exalted Christ himself, through his spirit and word, shepherds his redeemed sheep. That's why. It is through the officers of the church, the elders and deacons, that Christ himself, by his spirit and word, shepherds his redeemed sheep. This is not saying, this is not some hyper-clericalism as if you aren't ministering to each other with those gifts. You are ministering to each other as well. Of course you are. But it is, the, it is required of qualified men to serve in his office to carry out these duties in the church so that the church has order and function and faithful biblical ministry. Please don't miss this. This could be revolutionary for some who are here this morning who have never thought of the church in these terms, though the Bible clearly does on every page. It is through the faithful ministry of the church that Jesus, by his spirit and word, convicts, converts, gathers, protects, disciples, nourishes, serves, uh, dis, uh, disciplines, preserves, and brings home to glory those for whom Christ died. Remember the story I told earlier about that dear elderly couple who are most assuredly in heaven now, unless they're like 110. From the moment they were born to the moment they closed their eyes in death to even the graves. I wish we had a graveyard. I don't think Mount Pleasant's going to let us have a graveyard across the street there. Uh, I just don't think that's going to happen. But I wish we could have a graveyard one day because it reinforces something. Every time you walk into the church and walk out of the church, we realize this world is not our home. One day we will close our eyes in death. Oh, how it, oh, how it impacts one's life when you get to be my age and older and your, your loved ones begin going into glory how real it becomes. 
that life is but a breath. We have today to serve the Lord. We're not promised tomorrow, but we have today. God ordinarily works through the church and not apart from it. This is why Calvin famously wrote in his Institutes, quote, to those whom God is a father, the church must also be a mother. To those whom God is a father, the church must also be a mother. That's Institutes 411. Dear ones, Jesus' ascension to heaven didn't terminate his ministry to the church. No, his ministry really was just getting started when he ascended into heaven. His ministry continued by his word and spirit through the ministry of the church, primarily through the ministry of word, sacraments, and prayer. Churches, of course, are imperfect, as are those who lead them. That's certainly true of us. This is important to remember. Churches are more or less faithful, therefore, based upon how closely they adhere to God's word. They are more or less faithful based upon how closely they adhere to the word of God. The hope for believers, then, is that they find a church home that is more biblically faithful than less so, and the aim of every church should be to strive by God's grace to be faithful to Christ and his word. Now, one major facet of a healthy church, of a faithful church, is to identify, train, and ordain men who are qualified, called, and gifted to serve in church office, that is, to serve as elders and deacons. It's such a joy when people ask me about Christ Church. I, of course, share about our wonderful membership and all the precious covenant children and how the Lord is blessing this congregation with such joy and unity in the Lord. But the one thing I always mention is our officers, our elders and our deacons. And then I get now to talk about our new officers, our new elders, and our new deacons, and just the, the, the joyful, humble, Christ-centered unity within our officer corps, the, 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 the humility with which our officers serve, and these new officers being ready to serve. Some of them have already been, uh, been serving over these last uh, few weeks in training. We're so thankful for them. So what is an elder and what is a deacon? How are they different? Well, first of all, what is an elder? This is a massively important question. Uh, Cornelis Van Dam in his classic work, The Elder, writes this, quote, History has shown that the office of the elder cannot be taken for granted. It needs to be constantly rediscovered and its great value reappraised again and again. An elder is a shepherd who gives loving spiritual oversight to the flock. That's what an elder is. An elder is a shepherd who gives loving spiritual oversight to the flock. He is responsible for the teaching and preaching ministry in the church, to oversee it and to do it. He is responsible for teaching and defending sound doctrine. It's why in the qualifications for elder that were read earlier by Pastor Michael, there is that one clause that says he must be apt to teach. It's one of the big differences between the elder and the deacon, though there may be deacons that uh, could potentially teach and be involved in discipleship ministries, uh, the elder must have that qualification if he is going to serve in that office. The elder uh, is also responsible for the order or discipline of the church. Without faithful elders, the church will be unhealthy in myriad ways. 
In his letter to Titus, Paul writes in Titus 1.5, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Remember, elders keep the order and discipline of the church. And then in verse 9, he writes, The elder must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, that is, as I taught you, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. This is the role of the elder, to give oversight to the church, oversight to the doctrine, oversight to the membership, and to keep order and discipline in the church, and to do so not lording it over them, but humbly in service, ready to wash feet, always seeking to be an example of godliness and piety. 1 Peter chapter 5. Verses 1 through 4 is a key text on the elder. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder. By the way, did Peter see himself as the first pope? I don't think so. I don't think so. Here's Peter. I exhort you, the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. You say, well, pastor, I was in a church a few years ago, and, and the pastor was, was um, uh, he, he was, um, uh, domineering and, and uh, mean-spirited, and, and he sought shameful gain, and the elders uh, were domineering, and, uh, and they didn't really shepherd up. Well, they weren't, they weren't carrying out their office. They weren't doing what the Bible, t- this is what the Bible says that elders ought to be, and if they are not these things, they should be removed from office. And then verse 4, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. The chief shepherd. You see, the elders are the under shepherds, always serving under the chief shepherd, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the head of the church. And so when elders are leading and overseeing and ruling and and carrying out the order and discipline of the church, they're doing so always under the headship of Christ. Thus doing so in humility, always looking to the word for guidance and leading with humility. Earlier, we read from the book of Acts 20, 28, Paul was saying farewell to the Ephesian elders and he was exhorting them to remain faithful. And look what he says in verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. This is Paul's words to the elders in Ephesus. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit made you overseers to care for the church, which he obtained with his own blood. So elders, present elders and future elders, those that will be elders in like 10 minutes, please hear this. Paul's exhortation, inspired by God, is the exhortation that God gives to you and to me. That is that we are first and foremost to pay careful attention to ourselves. We pay first and foremost attention, careful attention to ourselves, that is to our own walk with God, to our own families, to our own marriages. It is 
a great breach of Scripture to, to, for a man to be in the ministry, a ruling elder or a teaching elder, pastor, to allow the marriage to go awry, the family to go awry, the household to be mismanaged, but then to lead a church. You see, the Bible calls men in these positions to pay, first and foremost, careful attention to yourselves. And we must do this because a target immediately gets, you, you wait for it. Once these elders are ordained, just wait. You'll see the target on their back being drawn. Imagine it anyway. Because Satan knows. I, I remember uh, when I was uh, several years ago watching The Patriot and Mel Gibson tells his sons, right, take out the officers. And, uh, and so that's what, that's what that kind of warfare looked like is they would take out the officers because when you take out the officers, everybody else flees. They don't know what to do. They have no one to give them commands. And so Satan wants to come after the leadership of the church. And so that's why we must pay careful attention to our own spiritual lives, our own walk with God, so that then we can care for the flock. A great need of the church is the elders' personal holiness. A healthy church has spiritually healthy leaders. Secondly, it says, pay careful attention to the flock. Careful attention. Pay careful attention. It means that we embrace this ministry of shepherding care wholeheartedly. We are all in. There's a sense in which we are never off. It's like, it's like as a parent, you, you, know, you don't tell your children, okay, I'm on vacation from you for like five days. Don't talk to me. Don't bother me. Don't, don't make any requests. If there's an emergency, deal with it. No, and church leaders are all in. There are calls that come in the middle of the night. There are things that happen in the church building. There are AC units that break down. There are things that happen where everyone just needs to be ready to serve. And that is the heart of, of an elder and, and a deacon, always ready to serve. In the book of church order, chapter 8, section 3, it describes the office of an elder. Please hear this. This is in our book of church order, all based on scripture. It belongs to those in the office of elder, both severally and jointly, to watch diligently over the flock committed to his charge, that no corruption of doctrine or of morals enter therein. They must exercise government and discipline and take oversight, not only from the spiritual interests of the particular church, but also the church generally when called thereunto. They should visit the people in their homes, especially the sick. They should instruct the ignorant, comfort the mourner, nourish and guard the children of the church. They should set a worthy example to the flock entrusted to their care by their zeal to evangelize the unconverted, make disciples, and demonstrate hospitality. All those duties which private Christians are bound to discharge by the law of love are especially incumbent upon them by divine calling or vocation, and are to be discharged as official duties. They should pray with and for the people, being careful and diligent in seeking the fruit of the preached word among the flock. What a beautiful description. What a wonderful summary of the office of elder. We see the qualifications for the elder in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. What about the deacon? Well, we've talked about this already some, but we see in Acts chapter 6, Chapter 6, the establishment of the first diaconate. Seven godly men were called forward to serve the church. 
They were to be men of good reputation, Acts 6. Men who were spirit-filled, that is, not filled with themselves or the world, but with the spirit, yielding to the spirit's leading. They were to have wisdom, so good reputation, spirit-filled, and with wisdom, that is, having good judgment about various situations with people and life, applying the wisdom of God's word to ordinary situations in life. The church needs to identify godly men who could serve humbly and faithfully in the local church so that the apostles and later pastors could be devoted to the ministry of prayer and the ministry of the word. The diaconate is not a stepping stone to the eldership. Not like an undergraduate degree and then a master's degree. There are certain gifts that a man who is called to serve in the diaconate have and, and, and do not have, and certain gifts that an elder has and do not have, and those gifts must be identified, and these men are challenged to think about whether or not they're called to this office. So it's not a stepping stone. It is one of two offices in our Lord's church, and they are both so, so profoundly important to the life and ministry of a healthy church. Diaconate is one of two offices ordained by God for the purpose of establishing and maintaining a healthy church to care for the practical needs of the church while keeping prayer and the ministry of the word central. Once again, Book of Church Order, chapter 9. It is the duty of the deacons to minister to those who are in need, to the sick, to the friendless, and to any who may be in distress. It is their duty also to develop the grace of liberality in the members of the church, to devise effective methods of collecting the gifts of the people, to distribute these gifts among the objects to which they are contributed. They shall have the care of the property of the congregation, both real and personal, and shall keep in proper repair the church edifice and other buildings belonging to the congregation. In matters of special importance affecting the prosperity of the church, they can take final action without the approval of the session and consent of the congregation. So what a blessing it is to have elders and deacons serving this church. How blessed we are to have the deacons that we currently have and that we are adding five more. I can tell you that our elders and our deacons have worked tirelessly within this congregation, almost always behind the scenes, almost always without notice, but with love in their hearts and sweat on their brow. Our deacons, who have served in so many ways in getting us into this beautiful facility, have taken care of this facility, have taken care of the finances, have taken care of safety and security needs, etc., 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 etc. We thank God for them. The reason why I believe this church is healthy and unified is by the grace of God and because of the work of our elders and deacons in so many ways. How does this relate to the gospel? Well, without the gospel, there is no church. We read in Ephesians 5.25 that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. In Acts 20.28, we read that Christ obtained the church with his own blood. Therefore, when we think of the church, we think of the gospel. How can we not? The ordinance of the gospel, the preaching of the word, the baptism, the Lord's Supper, these these primary means of grace which are set forth regularly in the life of this church, proclaim the gospel. Proclaim that God sent his son into the world to 
fully obey the law of God on our behalf and then to give his perfect life as an atoning sacrifice for our sins, bearing our sin and bearing God's wrath for our sin and then rising from the dead on the third day. And Christ, who now is ascended and and sitting on the throne of heaven at the right hand of God, he is building his church through the word and the spirit. And all of this is centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ. We, we rest in the gospel. We, rele- uh, we, we revel in the gospel. We, we hear the gospel. We, we glory in the gospel. And we take the gospel outside of these four walls into our community and into the world. This is how the gospel relates to the, 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 the church. Some people think, oh, uh, they'll say things like, I'm a Christian, but I'm not religious. I'm a Christian, but I don't believe in the institution of the church. But God does. He's the one who established it, and he did it because he loves his church. He created the institution and organization of the church because he loves the church. And over and over again, this is just assumed all over the Bible, that followers of Christ will be members of a local body. Who are the epistles written to? Church. Over and over again, we see it. The church is called into existence through the word of Christ and the gospel. The church is gathered, fed, strengthened, and perfected through the word of Christ and the gospel. The church is preserved and led home through the word of the gospel. The church is an embassy of God's saving grace in Christ, and we we live and function by the grace of God, and we take this gospel to the world. The church, the church is... Uh, Ephesians 2, the, the pillar and buttress of the truth. It's the divinely ordained institution through which Jesus himself shepherds the flock of God, those for whom he died and shed his very blood. It's through the ministry of the means of grace that Christ disciples and matures his children, taking us from, from day to day and month to month, Lord's day to Lord's day, and, and year after year where we are connected to and involved in and a part of and exercising our gifts in a local church. And so, dear ones, dear members of Christ Church, as these men are set apart this morning to serve you, let me exhort you this morning to pray for them. Encourage them. Encourage them. And in times of potential misunderstanding, make charitable assumptions of them. Make charitable assumptions of them. Satan would always have us think the worst of those in authority over us, and it's often his way of bringing unnecessary division in the church. Soon you will take vows to yield to these new officers. Quote, all that honor, encouragement, and obedience in the Lord to which their office, according to the word of God and the constitution of the church, entitles them. Hebrews thirteen seventeen. we are all exhorted to obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Christ Church, this is a special day in the life of our congregation, that which will affect many, many days and months and years Uh, to come. Eight new elders and deacons to shepherd and serve our flock, the flock which Christ loved and for which he gave his very life. 
Let us remember, dear ones, the central place the church has in our lives as Christians, the central place the church is meant to have in the lives of our children and for our witness in the world. Let us embrace God's blueprint for spiritual growth and discipleship and fellowship, namely the church with all of its warts, with all of its scars, with all of its hypocrisy, let us embrace the church for which Christ died and give ourselves to her. Christ loved the church so much that he gave his life for her. He cherishes his bride. Shouldn't we? Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for your word and for reminding us this morning of the importance of the church and the officers of the church. Father, please impress these things upon our hearts and minds now and help us to respond by grace, through faith, to your word and with obedience.